0: becoming a part of a community of faith, which uh, we will even see emphasized in particular uh, in our verses today, the importance of being a part of the body, a local community of believers and bringing your gifts to bear uh, into the life of a congregation and all that God would have in store for her. So uh, I encourage you to take the opportunity to, to do that. Uh, Picking up in Romans chapter 12 in verse 3, we we established those two foundational verses last week where Paul is transitioning out of what some would call his theological section, the first uh, uh, 11 chapters being somewhat dense and setting forth some uh, some theological precepts regarding the redemptive purposes of God through Christ Jesus, the fulfillment, and how that is and uh, continues to be the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, and uh, But transitioning out of that, Paul comes into what is a, a much more uh, practical stage and uh, uh, how this applies to our life. You, you see it even in the verbs of chapters 1 through 11, all the verbs are tend, uh, tend to be in the indicative mood. They're very instructive, very instructive words as to what we are to believe. And now the verb tenses, uh, the mood switches to uh, the imperative, uh, the imperative voice. It's uh, uh, It's exhortation emphatic. This is what the word means for you. This is how it ought to look in your life. But but Paul would take issue if we just said this isn't very theological, what's happening now in this next section from chapters 12 into 15. It is rooted and grounded in the theological foundation that he has established. And so verses 1 and 2 really are the key verses to understanding everything that he will unfold going through chapter 15. Now, the, the last, uh, last week when we looked at this passage, Paul put great emphasis upon, the, upon this renewing of your mind, that the work of transformation that God is accomplishing through Christ Jesus, through his spirit dwelling in us, what we would call the conversion experience. This is being accomplished by the renewal of your mind, not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And Paul is going to continue this idea of the importance of thinking of how we think about our faith, because how we think about it ultimately is going to, to, to be seen in how the life of faith is played out in our everyday lives. Now, if you're like me, whenever you hear someone use the expression, of spirituality. They use a term of spirituality, uh, in talking about their own life, or they use the term spiritual in describing other people. For me, that's kind of a, when I hear those expressions in today's culture, spiritual or spirituality to me, that's kind of ethereal. It's something that's hard to grasp as to what people really mean and what is understood by that. Uh, I have acquaintances that are unbelievers and yet they will, they will use this term. They will say, well, I'm not, I'm not a Christian. I don't consider myself a Christian, but, but I'm a spiritual person. And by that, their implication is is that they have, they've still hold on to some sense of the transcendent, that there is something above them and over them, that there is some force that, that is beyond what we see in, in this world. But even among Christians, you'll sometimes hear one Christian describe another Christian by saying, we well, you know they're just, they're just so spiritual. And when I hear that, I'm always curious what they, what they mean by that. And usually people respond this way, when one Christian is describing another Christian as being so spiritual, when asked about it, they'll say, well, you can just, you can watch them in worship. Oh, you can see how spiritual they are. They, uh, they stand and they sway back and forth and their eyes are closed and they raise their hands. And it's kind, of a, it's kind of a subjective, ethereal kind of understanding of what it is to be a spiritual person. And what they've described is really much more of a spiritual type. What most of us don't even realize is that you and I, as believers and followers of Christ, we very much have a spiritual type that is akin to our personality type. Corrine Ware wrote an interesting book a few years back entitled Discover Your Spiritual Type. And her premise is, is that we all have a spiritual type that is vital to the life of the church. Now, she discusses four different spiritual types. And, and what is thematic through her discussion of these four spiritual types that should be in every healthy church is that no one spiritual type is superior to another. Now, That's significant. There is no one spiritual type that is superior to another spiritual type. All are needed and all are necessary. Now, she, she discusses four of them that range from, uh, from the ones that are the most expressive, the ones that are the most demonstrative, to those that are more cerebral, those that are more reflective. And while our tendency is, is to attribute spirituality to those that are more demonstrative and more expressive, in fact, that's just their personality. They're like that in life. They're very demonstrative. They're very emotive. They're very expressive in everyday life. While those at the other extreme, they're just more reflective. They're contemplative. They're thoughtful. But the truth that she points out in her book is that every spiritual type is vital in the life of the church. As someone who is cerebral and reflective, thoughtful, contemplative, I need those around me that are expressive in worship. Just as those who are expressive in worship need someone like me. And so all personality types are vital. Well, to speak of spirituality from a biblical perspective, not a cultural perspective, a biblical perspective should be our priority as followers of Christ. But to speak of someone as being a spiritual person, Scripture would understand that, especially in the writings of the Apostle Paul, someone who is spiritual is someone who has had a redemptive encounter with the person of Jesus Christ. That is, you are what Jesus would call, you have been born again, as we see in John chapter 3. It is someone who has experienced the new life in Christ Jesus and by, vir- by virtue of this conversion experience, the Holy Spirit has come and taken up residence in you and is doing the, the work of transformation in you. Paul says a vital part of this is how the spirit is renewing your mind. So according to scripture, anyone who has possession, who is possessed by the person of the Holy Spirit, who is indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit, by virtue of that, you're a spiritual person. So maybe what we need to do is to rethink. Rethink what it is to be spiritual. Spiritual. Because it truly is just someone who is, who is holy, as Paul has described here. That's the calling upon our life, that we are to be a living and holy sacrifice. That is a people who are distinctive, a people who are unique, uh, who are even described by Peter as a peculiar kind of people. They, they, are, they are a distinctive people. They are a holy and separate people because we have been called by God and we are indwelt by his spirit. Now then, for our understanding, what I want us to do this morning is in seeking to have a biblical perspective of what it is to be a spiritual person, someone holy, acceptable unto God. It requires of us some necessities of our understanding. First of all, we have to think, you have to think rightly about yourself. That's the first thing that Paul describes here in verse 3 is thinking rightly about yourself. Understanding who you are and then eventually what you're a part of. Notice he says here in verse 3, for through the grace given to me. Now, Paul's going to talk about spiritual gifts here in a bit. He's just paving the way In, in a very subtle way. He is saying by the grace given to me, the grace of apostleship. By the grace of God, not that I've deserved this, but by the mercies of God, as we have seen him use that language in earlier verses. But now then, but because of, because of the grace given to me, because of my role in the office entrusted to me, I'm going to instruct you. I'm going to teach you. And I'm doing this not because I'm superior to you. I'm doing this out of the apostleship, out of the grace gift of apostleship that God has given to me. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, that is every believer that he's writing in Rome. I say to everyone among you, not to think, here's that thinking again, how we're supposed to think. I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound Judgment. Sober-minded may be the translation that you have. So Paul's desire is that we be a sober-minded people that if we think rightly about ourselves, if I think rightly about who I am in Christ Jesus, then I'm going to have sound judgment. I'm going to be sober-minded. When it comes to understanding who I am in Christ Jesus, as God has allotted to each one a measure of faith, now we know God is not particular. We know God doesn't show favorites. This doesn't mean that God has given some a greater measure of faith and some a lesser measure of faith. This is really talking about the standard of measure. And our standard of measure, if I'm going to think rightly about myself, if I'm going to be sober-minded, if I'm going to have a sound judgment and think rightly about myself, then the standard I compare myself against is not any one of you, but the standard is the Lord himself. You see, Paul is simply building upon what he has already established, the the theological precepts that he has already established back in those first first 11 chapters. And so because you and I as believers, as Paul has already said in in Romans chapter 3 and verse 9, he has already shown that every believer, including us, every believer was under sin, Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Every believer he'll say in Romans chapter also in chapter 4 but I'm thinking in particular chapter 5 in verses one, 1 and 9 he has also said of us that every believer is justified by faith in Christ Jesus nothing that we've done of ourselves and so the standard, if I'm going to get into the, into the business of evaluating my life and judging my life, then the standard of my comparison is not the people around me, it's not other believers I know, it's none other than the person of Jesus Christ himself. And thus, this kind of renewed thinking about, about who I am against the standard Of Christ Jesus this measure of faith that is out there before me well when I've when I've renewed my thinking and properly understand this you know what the result is Paul says sober minded I'm sober minded I've got sound judgment I don't hold myself up over others nor do I see myself beneath others, but I have, I'm humbled when I seek to evaluate my life and the call of God upon my life. When you're sober minded and you have sound judgment, that is a humbling thing. When the standard before you is none other than Christ Jesus himself. We live in a day and time when our thoughts of ourself can get out of hand, don't they? You know, and the humility that, that is achieved here with this kind of sober-minded thinking, don't confuse it with the false humility that we oftentimes see on, on social media. That kind of false, that kind of false humility that, that people float out there just so that they will receive the accolades of men make them feel good about themselves when they've set forth that kind of false humility for everyone to see. It's like minister friends of mine who tweet out, oh, just didn't get home till 830 tonight after a long, fulfilling day of ministry. You want know, everybody read, oh, how wonderful, how wonderful, how wonderful. And nobody said anything about him going in at noon or one o'clock, but But when, when your point of comparison is not others, but Christ, you get sober-minded real quick. You're given sound judgment that is very humbling. And when you have that kind of renewed thinking, it, it helps to have a, it gives to you a proper understanding of what it, what it is to be a spiritual person in Christ Jesus. Second thing that we need to think rightly about It's not just thinking rightly about yourself, but also thinking rightly about one another. Thinking rightly about one another. You see, this is Paul's primary concern. Now, for for context context sake, you have to appreciate, uh, as Paul is writing to the church at Rome, he's actually writing from Corinth. And as you hear Paul expound in the, in these verses that we're considering today, they sound very familiar, especially as he's using now in verses, uh, in verses four and five here, as he's using the metaphor of the body. It will sound very familiar to the language that Paul is using, uh, that he uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and somewhat in, in Ephesians chapter four. But it's a language that is very familiar. It was a language that was familiar in philosophical, political circles in that day and time. But now Paul has theologized it in using the body in talking about our relationship with one another. Now, now Paul's concern is Paul's no less influenced by his culture and his context than we are because Paul is sitting in Corinth and they are having very real dysfunction where some people think that they are superior to other people, that their gifts are superior to other people, that there's groups that are lesser than them, that there are lesser gifts in the life of the church. And it's this kind of radicalized individualism that has found expression in the church at Corinth. And that's what Paul is dealing with in Corinth. And in the Corinthian letters, But as he's sitting in in Corinth, as he's writing to the churches at Rome, you know in his thinking he has to be processing this and thinking, you know what, I'm gonna head off in Rome. I hope I can head this off before they ever have any issues like the church at Corinth had. I'm just gonna head this off. And I want them to have an appreciation of, of, of what it is in their kinship, and their relationship to one another as the body of Christ. He says in verse four, for just as we have many parts in one body, in all the bodies parts do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually we are, we are parts of another. Now, as Paul's writing here, you and I can, can easily glean from this the general characteristics of a body, of what Paul is, is talking about. Now, Paul's talking first about unity, the unity of, of the body of, of Christ. You see the language for just as we have many parts in one body, and all the body parts do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually, parts to one another. And what Paul wants us to capture is the idea that what we do, we do for the benefit of the whole. What we do as the people of God, listen, remember Paul's writing from a culture in Corinth that is radically individualized. What would you say of our culture? It is a radically individualized culture a culture that no longer thinks and makes decisions and choices based upon what is the greater good of the community. No, it's always my rights, my privileges that I'm going to exercise. Paul says not in the body of Christ. What we do, we do for a greater good. We make choices and decisions in congregational life that are for the good of the church. Paul would say in, in, uh, when he's dealing with spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 13 and 14, he uses the word edification over and over and over again. And what he's saying to those that want to to individualize their, their role in the church or hold preeminent their giftedness in the church, Paul's saying, no, you have to evaluate what you think the Spirit is leading you to do. You have to evaluate that against, does it edify the body? Does it lift up the body? Is it for the betterment of the body? It's never about personal preferences. After I'd been here a few months, reminds me of an account a few months after I'd been here as pastor some 20 years ago, a good friend of mine came to me and talked about all the changes that he, he would like to see in, in the 11 o'clock service. All the music, he thought it ought to reflect what we do at 815. And I said, you know, you're kind of preaching to the choir because I'm no different from anyone else. I have my own personal preferences. We all have preferences when it, when it comes to music or whatever it is in life, we all have preferences. And I said, so I said to my friend, I said, so you're preaching to the choir. My preferences are the very same as yours. That's my favorite genre of music. But as I pointed out to him, if I'm not going to base decisions for the church upon your prep upon, if I'm not going to base my leading of the church upon my preferences, what makes you think I'm gonna do it based upon your preferences? Because I don't impose my personal preferences on the leadership of the church. It's about what what is for the greater good of the congregation and the building up of the body of Christ. Or relate it to the story in the Talmud in this individual expression. The story in the Talmud about two men sitting in a boat when one of them took out a a, a drill and started boring a hole in the boat. Other guy said, hey, 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 what are you doing? He said, it's none of your business. I'm drilling under my seat. It became the business of everyone in the boat, didn't it? It had an impact. And that's what what Paul's concern is. I don't want you, the church at Rome, I don't want you to spin out of control and have the issues that I'm having to deal with in Corinth. The unity of the church is preeminent in all things. This body, this metaphor of the body that Paul is using and talking about the church, it's not... It's not just about its unity, but it's also its, its diversity. We can, look, we can look around our room, and there's great diversity. We have ethnic, ethnic diversity. We have diversity in our, in our backgrounds, in our upbringing, back, diverse jobs. We have people here from, from all walks of life and background, and that's to our strength. In fact, it's a greater strength. Paul would, Paul would say over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 22, he says, On the contrary, it is much truer that the parts of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Because you see in this rich diversity of background, you bring experience to the life of this church that I don't have, just as I bring experience to the life of the church that you don't have. Every one of our narratives, every one of our stories are unique. They are particular, but they are vital to the life of the church and everything that God would have us to become. There's also a mutuality in this metaphor of, of body. See it again in verse five. So we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually we are parts of one another. Listen, you will never find the fulfillment that God has in store for you and the fulfillment that Christ would de- desire for you. You will never experience that. You can call yourself a Christian, but you will never have that a fulfillment apart from being in the body. The whole Lone Ranger mentality about, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. There's nothing that sounds real, real spiritual To use the word, there's just no biblical basis for it. Faith is always best exercised in the context of community. Family is prevailing metaphor in scripture for the people of God. It's a family. And when you have those who are trying to exist as Christians, those who are outliers from the the body, from the community, it it will never offer the fulfillment that God anticipates for you. Now, I know the retort. I deal with it all the time. The retort is, well, Bobby, what's really important is I'm part of the church universal. You know, and they, and they wanna to point to that, you know, that one Greek word they know, ecclesia. And so well, you know in the, in the New Testament, when it talks about ecclesia, it's just the church universal. Well, that's not a compelling argument because when you see Paul using the word ecclesia for church in the New Testament, 75% of the time, it applies to a local body. A community of believers like Colossae, Rome, Corinth. It's because the expectation is, is that faith is always going to be to be lived out in the context of community. That's how we long. That's how we learn to get along. That's how we that's how we learn to embrace all the diversity. It's only in the context of community that we learn how to take our eyes, our myopic perspective in life. It's the only way to move past the prevailing thought of my preferences. When you see that there is a greater work being accomplished around you. So let's rethink a final thing. Let's start thinking rightly then about God's gifts. Now, I'm contemplating coming back to these verses next week, verses six through eight that I'm going to read, but I, I want to use it for a different purpose today. I may come back to it next week as we go back and complete that full chapter of chapter 12 and spend some time on these, on these spiritual gifts and understanding these gifts and, and how we can apply them. Maybe these are your gifts that you've never identified in your life. But I want you to listen to what Paul says here. Having talked about the body of Christ, Our diversity, our our unity, diversity, our mutuality, our dependence upon one another. He then says this, however, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, charismata, our grace gifts, spiritual gifts, all of our gifts we have received, the gifts that you and I have, it's a result of God's grace, not our merit, not because some are more talented than others. Every grace is a grace gift. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to use them properly if prophecy in proportion to one's faith. Same thing he meant earlier, the standard of measure, Christ Jesus. If prophecy in proportion to one's faith, if service in the acting of serving serving, or the one who teaches in the act of teaching or the one who exhorts in the work of exhortation, the one who gives with generosity, the one who is in leadership with diligence. The one who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Some things I want to say and make clear, and I think this will be a good segue into next week and what we're going to deal with these specific gifts. What I would say to you for basic understanding when it comes to spiritual gifts is that every one of us in here who profess Christ as Savior who consider ourselves to be devoted followers of Jesus Christ, every one of you have a spiritual gift. You need to understand, first of all, you have a spiritual gift. At your conversion, when you determined that you wanted to be a follower of Jesus Christ, there was this redemptive work of redemption that was accomplished in you once and for all and is still being accomplished in you, but it is being accomplished by work of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And when the Holy Spirit comes and indwells those who become followers of Jesus Christ, he comes bearing gifts. You have a gift. Now, you've got to figure out what that gift is. Now, here, here's, here's the criteria of what edifies the church. It's not about, it's not about individual recognition. It's about, it's about edification. It's about edification, not recon, recognition. Recognition. So this gift that you have in the the listing, Paul, in these catalogs of gifts, spiritual gifts that you find in the New Testament, none of those are exhaustive. You don't have to go back and read all three and four of these lists, lists saying, well, where do I fit in? Your spiritual gift might be something that's not on the list. Your spiritual gift may be something for which you already have a natural inclination, but now you are using it in devotion and dedication to God because it is something that the church desperately needs to be all that it can be and to be edified and lifted up. Now, at the same time, having said that, that a gift can be something for which you have a natural inclination, your spiritual gift may well be something that you never imagined doing. In fact, it may may be something that you have said before, I would never do that. Or I could never do that. But there, there is this unceasing haunting of the Holy Spirit that this is what you're supposed to do. And so out of faithfulness and out of devotion, you continue forward into that path, pursuing this gift that God has laid upon your heart. And then you find lo and behold, that God is effectively using that gift to impact the lives of others for the edification of his church. Second thing I would have you to understand is that all of our gifts are necessary. All of our gifts are necessary. Every one of you have a gift. And I want you to know that your gift is necessary to the life of this church. And your failure to implement your gift, your failure to exercise your gift, means that our church is lacking. It means that our church is not everything that it could be. And so a third thing that that I would say regarding these spiritual gifts is that you, you must value your gift knowing it's important in the life of the church, knowing your gift's importance in the body of Christ, you must not devalue your gifts. By that, I mean, you mustn't look look at your gift as being nothing or or your gift being less important, and now you find yourself longing for someone else's gifts. You're depriving yourself, and you're depriving your church family of which you're a part every gift is vital. You have to have a conviction. Listen, you've got to embrace it. You have to have a conviction that if I don't use my gift, my church lacks. When I was in the process of being brought to my former church, first time I ever met with that pulpit committee before I went to Nederland, there was this lady on that committee You know, and and questions are always telling, especially the first time you meet with the committee, the questions they ask, it's usually in response to what they didn't like in the last guy. That's just human nature. You go from ditch to ditch. So the first question out of all the questions that could have been asked of me, theological, personal, anything, no, no theology. First question this lady asked was, do you sing during your sermons? Which, what does that tell you? Previous pastor sang during his sermons. He burst forth in song right in the middle of a sermon. And I said, no, ma'am. I said, you can be assured. One thing I will never do during the course of a sermon is burst forth in song. I said, I know what my lane is. And I stay in my lane. But I I, I knew what she was talking about. I know a lot of preachers who wish they could sing. And they can't. And I assured her, I know my lane. See, I know the value of gifts. I know that there's people here that you hear the word of God when it's proclaimed. I know that there's, I know that there's a unique kinship between the pastor, the under shepherd, the congregation, and the work of the Holy Spirit. That God works through his word, the proclaimed word. And you hear things sometimes that I didn't even see. I hear people, I entertain people sometimes at the back door. They'll say something like, Pastor, that message really touched me this morning. And I will ask them, what part of the message spoke to you? What part of the message are you talking about? And they'll say, oh, you know that part where you said this? And I no more said that than a man in the moon. But in this unique Triangle of relationship between the under shepherd, the congregation and the working of the Holy Spirit and where they were in their station in life and their circumstances of life. Whatever I said, the Holy Spirit took it and said it into their ear, into their heart in a way that ministered their spirit. And when I stand before you every Sunday, I have that conviction An unwavering conviction that somehow in all of this God's going to speak to you but you know what else I understand is that there's some people sitting here this morning that hear me speak he said I don't have a clue what he's talking about but those same people are the ones who are stirred in their hearts by some particular song you will hear the Word of God in song that you will not hear through spoken word And so you have to have a conviction that values your gift. And I'm going to close here real quick, and we'll pick up on this next week. But you know what I notice, what jumps to the forefront? When I look at this little listing of gifts right here that that I've just read off, most of these tasks, these gifts, they're hard work. Yeah, they're spiritual gifts, but they're hard work. In fact, the tone that you find here in Paul's writing as he's des- describing these vi- gifts and the importance of these gifts and they're being exercised in the life of the church. There's, there's a tone in Paul's writing here grammatically. It's a, it's a kind of it's kind of a, of a roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty tone. Just hard work. All these are hard just because they're spiritual gifts doesn't make them easy requires hard work. What it means when you read these gifts, it's about, it's about engaging yourself and getting your hands dirty into the muck and the mire of the human dilemma, and that's hard. And my great fear for the church, especially for the affluent church in the West, is that we are moving away. If not, we have already moved away completely. From this roll-up-your-sleeve use of our gifts, immersing them into the muck and mire of everyday life. And instead, you know what the affluent church has done? Most of the churches have become flavor-of-the-day churches. They adapt certain causes. We jump on the bandwagon for, some, for, some, for certain flavor-of-the-day causes. And we embrace these causes that look noble on the surface. But you never get your hands dirty. Oh, we put together committees for this flavor of the day cause. We put together committees so that we can get more people to sign petitions. Oh, we're gonna get people, we're gonna get yard signs made. We're gonna put, we're gonna put out yard signs. Oh, I got a great idea. Let's get some bumper stickers made. Somebody pick, oh, what about T-shirts? That'd be wonderful. Yard signs, T-shirts. Man, we'll get everybody to sign these petitions. Oh, you see it around election cycles, especially. Let's get out yard signs, bumper stickers for this, for this seemingly noble cause. Let's hang banners out. And everybody will know what we're against and, and what we're for. But it's a, you know what that does for the affluent? it just appeases their conscience. Never gets their hands dirty. That's low-hanging fruit. To adopt some flavor of the day cause and say, I'm going to put a yard sign out, I'm going to hang a banner, wear a T-shirt, sign a petition, put a bumper sticker on my car. That's low-hanging fruit. That's easy. That doesn't capture the essence of what Paul's talking about here. Anybody can do that. That's what I love about our church. We're not much on bumper stickers and banners, yard signs. Hey, sign this petition and be against that. You know know what's accomplished when you do all that? Absolutely nothing. You've done nothing. You've appeased the conscience of the affluent. And that's what I love about our church. We are elbow deep in the muck and mire of the human conditions that exist in our community, around our city, around the world. And that's why I love you, is that your advocacy of life is willing to get dirty to get your hands dirty. That your faith and the expression of your faith and the living out of your faith, it's not all hype. It's holy. The most holy man in the world came in muck and mire, our Lord Jesus. He wasn't born in the Sistine Chapel. He wasn't born in elegance he was born in the muck in the mire in the stench of a stable and his life becomes exhibit a of where holiness is lived out in the messiness and the dirtiness of everyday life and that's why i love you you're not hype you're holy let's pray together our father how desperately we need in your church, in the body of Christ, a new understanding of the power that is the body of Christ, of what can be accomplished in this world when we are willing to roll up our sleeves, to put our hands into the muck and the mire of unholiness so that the the light of holiness might be seen by some. Father, challenge us to rethink, rethink in our hearts and minds what it is to be a people called out by you. Lord, how vital it is to be a part of a community, to be a part of a people that are the body of Christ, that are the people of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.